0: So in the first part of this letter, Paul is just addressing these these big culture-level issues in the Corinthian church, the big picture. Just like the world around them, the church should become tribal and angry and confused about all sorts of things. So in chapters 1 through 4, Paul just addresses these things and the real fundamentals of how we should interact with each other and behave as believers. And then, having established the broad principles of how to speak and and think and behave, he starts to zoom in on much more specific things. And to reiterate something Ben said a couple of weeks ago, this part of the letter, the middle bit, with all of its sensitive topics, is not random. Paul's not having a rant. This is a response to several direct questions that he'd been asked about these very things. So my advice to you, if no one is talking about fornication and sexual orientation and conjugal rights and gender inequality and racial tension, don't bring it up. Don't make that your kind of lead. But if everyone's talking about it, don't be silent either. You might have noticed the last few weeks, these subjects that we've talked about from the pulpit really weird and awkward though it is to hear about them in the church, are pretty much the only things that the world has been talking about for the last 10 years or so. We used to give PG-13 warnings to sermons like the ones we've been preaching. We now give them a PG-5, because our kids seem to know more than we do about some of these things. Ultimately, Ben and I are glad that the letter of 1 Corinthians has forced us to preach about stuff that we don't want to preach about. Because... It turns out that the Corinthian church, as they engaged with these real issues from a gospel perspective and brought the good news of Jesus to bear on these sort of things, found that people were being built up in their church. They found that people were growing in in the Lord and being set free. Our kids are struggling right now. I think that's partly because the church has conceded ground to the secular world and felt there's things we can't talk about. In Corinth, for all of the church's failings, and as we've seen, that church was riddled with failings, they were at least willing to talk about difficult things. And as they talked about difficult things, clearly the Spirit was up to something, because the church started to look a little bit different from the world. There was something more free and more fun about the church. There was something more restorative and more intimate, I think more honest, and certainly more vulnerable than anything else in the boastful town. As the church proclaimed the good news, what do you think happened? It grew. And as the church grew, what do you think happened? It attracted just about every type of person that there is. Every walk of life was drawn into this church. So the question before us today is, how do you do that? How do you incorporate people who are radically different from yourself into one body of believers? Let's turn to chapter 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Just come as you are. That's how you do it. You unlock the door. Some years ago, a long time ago, I think, praise the Lord, a visitor here to our church was rebuked on his first day for wearing the wrong sort of clothes. He came to our church for the first time, and someone looked him up and down and scowled and said, we don't dress like that here. Next time you come, make sure you wear a lounge suit. Now, uh, it turns out at the first service, people don't know what a lounge suit is. This is a quote. It's not my own word. Uh, basically, it's what you wore to relax about 150 years ago. <laughs> uh, what we would wear, say, for example, if we had an appearance in court. Your most formal clothes. Um, what if this was the only interaction that guy had ever had with a Christian? What if he didn't own a lounge suit? Or, or a lounge, for that matter. Jesus didn't have one. Uh, what, what if he came here because he was broken? And this was his last stop before a bridge. And the only reason he came here is because he heard we had some news of some kind that might be able to help. And what he got instead was a rebuke about his clothes. You do not belong here because you do not dress like me. And that was his welcome to the church. The most important thing is not how you dress or how you speak or, or what you do or what you did. If It was very impressive or very shameful. That's not the most important thing. The main thing is whether you respond to Jesus Christ. And if you do, if you do that, all other identities, good and bad, will be overwhelmed immediately by the grace and the identity of Jesus Christ. That is all that matters. That's the theory. That's the Christian story. Uh, Two very specific examples now to test the theory at the extremes. Circumcision and slavery. And we thought the letter was going to get easier. All right, verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Now, time out. If you're a football fan, time out. Rugby, TV screen. We're going to go upstairs to the third official and just take a little time out, have a chat, and figure out some things before the game goes on. Do not get weirded out by this word that's repeated over and over and over again. Uh, circumcision was the covenant mark on the flesh of being a Jew. This was a reminder to the Jewish people, the boys at least, that they were different from everyone else. But of course, Jews perceived a distinction between themselves and others that was far more than skin deep. This was the sign or the seal uh, or, the, or the symbol On the body, marking you out as being one who belonged to God. Those without the mark were unclean. They didn't belong. They were kept away. In Paul's letters, circumcision is often just a a sort of stand-in term for the whole Jewishness of being a Jew. All the history, all the law, all the prophecy, all the purity, all the persecution, all the hope. All of it summarized with one little word. Bishop Tom Wright calls this a cultural boundary marker. You have insiders and you have outsiders. You have us, you have them. We have we, other. So I paraphrase verse 18 for anyone put off by the term. Was anyone at the time of his call already Jewish? Let him not seek to remove the marks of Jewishness. Was anyone at the time of his call un-Jewish? Let him not seek Jewishness, for neither Jewishness counts for anything, nor un-Jewishness, but keeping the commandments of God. It doesn't matter, basically, is what he's saying. Even the most significant differences between people matter no more. That's the old stuff. That's the old covenant. That's the old news. There is something new. You are something new. If you are in Christ, so those old distinctions no longer apply. There are not two tiers of Christian: former Jews and former pagans. There's not first class and second class Christians. Uh, people who are really successful out in the world, who had an amazing career, and people who got everything wrong. Those kind of first group, those can be our Premier League Christians, and the others kind of scrape in. You're still a believer, but you're not as good. That is not a Christian doctrine. Not a Christian distinction. We're all the same. You know, it's kind of funny because I I sometimes think we almost have a prejudice the other way around today. Almost like an anti-purity prejudice. Like if you're actually a bit of a somebody, that's almost a stigma. And uh, when it comes to testimonies, for example, I've found that the ones that people tend to love the most are the ones where the person sharing the good news was terrible before they got saved. Those are the good ones, right? At seminary, we had a couple of guys in in my class training uh, to be ordained who'd been to jail. One was a gangster involved in contract killings, and the other one was really bad. Uh, He was a realtor. (laughs) And, uh, you know, (laughs) a a fraudulent realtor, just to make it clear. Um, (laughs) Because there was a realtor sitting right on the front row in the first service. I was like, oh, why am I doing that joke? Um, your realtor, <laughs> um, everyone loved their stories, these two, the two criminals. Everyone loved their stories. And whenever they got up on, on Testimony Week, you could hear a pin drop in the room. People loved to hear about how they did these things and how they got caught and how they reached rock bottom and how in desperation within the confines of a cell they gave the life to Jesus Christ. Those were the, the good ones. And then someone else would get up some sort of flippy floppy kid who just had a neat little life and say, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. You know, I went to Sunday school every week. I was just really good. And then I became a pastor, which was nice. And then my kids all became Christians and my kids are great and it's nice and everything's nice. Isn't that nice? And everyone was like, yeah, Yeah. get him off. Like what a rubbish story. Bring the killer back. He was funny. He was cool. Get that guy in. It's actually not a rubbish story. If you love Jesus and your kids love Jesus, that's actually pretty good. It's what you hope for. You don't want them to have their lives fall to bits just so they can have a neat testimony. It's actually okay to raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord, but ultimately, neither matters. A jail cell really doesn't matter. All that matters is Jesus Christ. You'd be better off if your children all went to jail for life and inherited eternal life, than succeeded in this world and entered hell at the end of it. All that matters is Jesus Christ. In the words of Metallica, nothing else matters. We've had a Nirvana lyric as well in here somewhere, come as you are. It's a good day, isn't it, for rockers. Uh, Like the city of Corinth, I think our identity politics today are all kind of premised on the idea that ideas matter and that really our ideas and our our preferences and our desires define us. They don't. They don't define us at all. If you are in Christ, he defines you. His identity is yours. Your past is immaterial. Whether it was a source of pride or a source of shame, all of it is overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. Jews, non-Jews, they're all one in Christ. Let's turn up the temperature a little bit more. Maybe this Jew, non-Jew stuff doesn't really matter to you, because, you know, you're well aware, this is old news. Jesus, amongst his disciples, had, uh, you know, a zealot and a tax collector, and they didn't exactly get along. Uh, If you've been watching The Chosen, you probably know that. Um, or, Or maybe You've you read about it somewhere else. I don't, know. I don't know where people found out about the gospel before that show was launched, but uh, I believe there's another source. Um, let's make it worse, shall we? Uh, instead of this cultural Jew, non-Jew thing, verse 21. Were you a bond servant when called? Now, bond servant or doulos in Greek means slave. And Immediately you see the seriousness of that word. And Paul continues in verse 21. Do not be concerned about it. Like slavery, no biggie. Don't worry about it. Now, clearly to us, uh, that sounds outrageous. Just don't worry about slavery. I mean, I hope that sounds outrageous. Because, uh, of course, we know that in modern history, this verse and verses like it have been abused by the owners of slaves to justify what they did. So what we need to do before we examine this little section of Scripture is have another one of those football timeout moments, or if you're a rugby fan, TV review, or go upstairs and have a chat with the ref. A few quick points. Number one, Paul condemns slavery. In First Timothy, he equates it with murder. And he says that people who go around saying slavery is okay are a great example of people who don't know what they're talking about. It is wrong, and it's wrong to say that it's right. Uh, secondly, number two, Uh, Doulos, the bondservant of 1 Corinthians, it's a defined term. It is not the same thing, quite, as the slavery of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, uh, nor is it, for that matter, the same thing as slavery today, where people have been kidnapped and forced to work uh, in certain establishments or or forced to make your phones or your lounge suits, for example. It's not that kind of slavery either. Mm -hmm. A bondservant was paid. A bondservant was given enormous discretion over how they behaved. A bondservant's obligations would expire and many bondservants who had been freed, who'd become freed men at the end of their contract would choose to go back and work for their old boss, their old master, again, as a free man because they actually seemed to like the work. Three, Paul says right here, if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity their system might not have been quite as heinous as the ones that we've had in recent history. But it was still not ideal. And Paul says it would be better to be free. There's a little bit of undermining of the system that's going on here. And four, in any event, he blows all hierarchies out of the water because if you think it would be awkward to come to an affluent church humbly dressed or to come to a predominantly ethnically Jewish church as a pagan, ritually impure outsider, imagine what it would be like to come to one table and drink from one cup and eat of one bread being served by the man who owned you. Clearly, Paul is introducing a radical concept right here about equality, testing the theory at the absolute extremes with this word slave. So back to the plot. Paul says do not be concerned about it. Not do not be concerned about slavery. It's clearly very wrong. Do not be concerned about your little social strata, your little hierarchies. Who's up, who's down, who's in charge, who's first class, who's second. Don't be concerned about that. Let's do some theology now as to how such an extraordinary thing could possibly work. Verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freedman of the Lord. You have a new ID, a new identity that far exceeds any earthly identities, any earthly bonds. You might be trapped as a slave. You might be trapped in a job that you hate. You might have a horrible boss. You might be trapped in a marriage. You might be trapped in all sorts of things. You might be trapped in a pattern of addiction whatever it is from this world that has a hold of you, don't forget that more fundamentally, you are free in Jesus Christ. Those things do not get to define you. That isn't who you are. He is who you are. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You also have a new type of bondage, which is even stronger than anything that this earth has, one that far exceeds any earthly freedom, And that is your bond to Christ. We all have a master. We all have an owner. It is God. And verse 23, you were bought with a price by him. The inference is a high price. Jesus owns you because Jesus paid for you. He purchased your freedom that you have with his blood. This is slave market language. The price of your redemption was his enslavement. It was the moment when all of your sin was transferred onto him. And now that he owns you and has set you free, he has named you, given you a new identity, that of his. His identity, his name imputed upon you overwhelms all previous identities, overwhelms anything from your past. The differences between us in this room are immaterial. We're all in that slave market. We've all been purchased to freedom by Jesus Christ. We were all slaves to sin. We were all bound for hell and death, but no longer. Now remember, Paul has a habit here in the middle of his letter of starting a point and going off this way and then kind of getting distracted and going off about something else and then interrupting his interruption by getting distracted and going over somewhere else and then finally returning back to the point again. For years, scholars have speculated as to why he would write this way. Uh, Now that I have a house full of teenagers, I think I know. (laughs) He must have had TikTok, I think. Probably a diet of of Cheetos and Mountain Dew. This is the only explanation for Paul's structure in this letter. That's actually not really true. It's a clever device. And if you're interested in why he writes this way, uh, the podcast and the adult forum, those are the places where we dive into that kind of a thing. For now, just be aware, in the middle of 1 Corinthians, Paul introduces a point, interrupts it, and then returns to it again multiple times. So, quick recap of chapter 7. Your old religious, old racial, old social status doesn't matter anymore because now you are one in Christ. Dot, 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 chapter 9, verse 19 back to the point. We know we're back to the point because he's using the same technical terms that he was using in chapter 7. Chapter 9, verse 19, for though I am free from all, you know, it's been purchased, I have made myself a servant, that's actually the same word, bond servant, doulos, slave, though I'm free, I've made myself a slave again to all, to everyone, so that I might win more of them. I'm going to do a little bit of living like the people around me to reach the people around me. I'm going to keep going back into that slave market to talk to the people who are still there, who've not been redeemed yet. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Let me put this another way. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. Paul kept some of the old covenant Jewish law. Not because he had to, he was free, but because he wanted to, as a tactic to reach those who were still living that way. He accommodated his behavior to the people he was trying to reach. Likewise, verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. He hung out with others, outsiders, them, and he acted like them in order to win them. Note the little brackets around each of these statements and why in a complicated structure it's helpful to have Scripture open. Bracket number one, though, not being myself under the law. He didn't have to keep the law. He chose to keep it temporarily to reach those who did. Brackets number two, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He didn't sin like the pagans. He might have hung out with them and behaved like them in a superficial way, but he didn't do everything they did. He didn't visit shrine prostitutes and uh, sacrifice to Molech and that kind of a thing. He was willing to drop the cultural baggage, willing to take on some new cultural baggage if it worked, but only up to a point. In fact, he says in verse 22 I have become all things to all people. It is a tactic or a strategy for evangelism. Timothy Keller says he adapts his lifestyle to foreign customs and contextualizes the gospel message. Church, these are my contextual trousers. (laughs) Feast your eyes. I'm not actually particularly drawn to this color, Uh, sort of salmonic hosiery. It's not my thing. And cats away this weekend. It's the first time I've worn these trousers. She's going to kill me when she finds out. Um, But I do know that people in Fox Chapel absolutely love this sort of thing. So uh, I put them on for you. (laughs) This is my tactical belt. It's got whales on it and uh, little American flags inside the whales. I know know that's very important to you. So I have worn this because I love you. I want to reach you with the gospel with this (laughs) outfit. says in verse 22, that by all means, I might save some. These are evangelistical trousers. I can walk through any golf club in the land, almost undetected, in these pants. And then I can tell people about Jesus. That's why. Someone said said at the first service, why are you so casually dressed? only, Only in Fox Chapel could bright pink trousers be casual. I want to go into those clubs. I want to go to the golf club and the field club and the racket club and the Oakmont club and the Longview. I want to go to them. We've got more clubs in the strip district around here, haven't we? I want to, <laughs> I want to go to these places. <laughs> it's not my joke. It's a, they sell a t-shirt with that on it in Giant Eagle. but I, I, I want to do this because there are people in those places that need Jesus Christ. It's actually an unevangelized people group, if you can believe it. You don't get any credit at all when you meet with other pastors and you say, where do you live? I said, well, actually, I've got a four-bedroom detached house in Fox Chapel with a double garage that open electronically. And uh, they go like, oh, okay, that's nice. This is a neglected people group. They need Jesus Christ. The mistake the world makes is that those who are materially well-off somehow don't need Jesus because they've got it all. They're enslaved, just like everyone else. Saints, if someone comes into our church wearing a monocle and a top hat, and I think I know who might be going to do it, and (laughs) someone else wears a cat t-shirt with a neck tattoo, and we all know who that is. (laughs) Let's, Let's do the same, shall we? Let's all do that. We have a parlor. It wouldn't take much to turn it into a tattoo parlour, would it? Just a name change. It was said of the late Queen Elizabeth that uh, if a guest made a faux pas at a dinner, she would copy them so that they felt at home. What a thought. That we would deny someone entrance to the kingdom of God over something as superficial as taste is absolutely abhorrent to the plain word of God. It's a terrible thing to do. And now for the zinger. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Obviously, we get that bit, don't we? Within limits, we accommodate our preferences to those of the visitor so that they might just turn to Jesus Christ for strategic reasons. We change our behavior to the culture of the town. But then he says, that I may share with them in its blessings. And I had to reread that bit. Reread it. Reread it carefully. Not that I may share with them its blessings. Tell them about Jesus. That I may share with them in its blessings. Get some more blessing for myself. The advantage of all of this flexibility, is to Paul. He benefits from building up the body like this. He benefits from welcoming in new people who are different from the other people in the church. Every single person incorporated into the body of Christ strengthens the body of Christ, brings more glory to God. It brings more treasure to the evangelist. It brings more joy to us all to see the way that the Spirit manifests through those who are different from ourselves. We don't want new people in here with all their different ways. We need them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for top hats, monocles, cat t-shirts and neck tattoos. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that the good news transcends all boundaries of all kinds, even the most extreme. We pray, Heavenly Father, therefore, we would find a place at your table. We thank you that you are the ultimate master and you serve us at the table. We turn up sometimes weakened, sometimes broken, sometimes confused, sometimes shamed by our shame and sometimes shamed by our pride. And then you give us a meal, and you wash our feet, and you purchase us. Week after week, we thank you for providing it for us again and again, to assure us that you love us. Amen.